Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor in the Public Policy and Global Affairs Program at Nanyang Technological University. I'm delighted today to be joined by Jacob Ricks, co-author with Amy Liu of Ethnicity and Politics in Southeast Asia, out in 2022 in the Cambridge University Press Elements Series. Jake, welcome to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thank you for having me, Duncan. So Jake's Associate Professor of Political Science at Singapore Management University and has worked extensively on the politics of both Indonesia and Thailand across a variety of issues ranging from elections to water resources and not least questions of ethnicity. Ethnicity and politics in Southeast Asia is an overview of the field that focuses on six ethnic groups across four different countries, the Lao, the Malays, and the Chinese in Thailand, and then the Chinese in Malaysia, the Malays in Singapore, and the Chinese in Indonesia. So, Jake, today I've only got you on, and I'm not able to have Amy with us in the conversation. Could you just say a little bit about how the two of you worked together and what her main contributions were to the project? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Amy and I have worked together multiple times over multiple years on a number of projects. Amy has worked on the politics of language in Southeast Asia, and she has a couple of books on those issues. Um, I myself focus more on Thailand, and so you'll see half of the cases in the book are based in Thailand. Some people might think it's a little weird. Why are we talking about ethnicity and politics in Southeast Asia where there are so many ethnic issues, but we're focusing on Thailand where quite often people don't think of Thailand as a place that has ethnic tensions or ethnic issues. Amy was interested in some of these issues, mostly in Singapore and Malaysia, and I was interested in them in Thailand. And so we had a number of conversations about this. And we were interested not just in identifying where ethnic conflict occurred, but identifying where ethnic accommodations happen and ethnic integration happens. So I think that's where we both have our strengths in different areas. I focus mostly on ethnic integration, while Amy could focus more on the challenges of ethnic accommodation in Singapore and Malaysia. Great, because obviously there are a lot of other books and articles out on related topics, and many of our listeners might be familiar with other texts like uh, David Brown's now almost classic book of about 30 years ago, which I confess I assigned to my students many times. What's sort of new about this book? The new angle or the new side that we're talking about, we're really talking about the variation in ethnic and the treatment of ethnic minorities in Southeast Asia and how the states, states which are dominated by a single ethnic group, tend to act towards their ethnic minorities. And so we're not just focused on issues of a single group or a single location. We're focused on how we theorize an ethnic hegemon group. We call them ethnic hegemons, but a dominant ethnic group in a state 
makes the decision on how they're going to treat a minority group, whether they decide to try and integrate the group, whether they decide to try and exclude the group. Great. And of course, a lot of people, as soon as you use the ethnicity word, will be looking around trying to address for themselves the key question here for a lot of people, which is, what is ethnicity when it's at home? How are you defining ethnicity? Now, I know you've got three constituent markers, and two of them seem reasonably obvious, language and religion, but what's a feeder type? It's a good question. There's been a number of debates about what is ethnicity, right? Where does it come from? What do we base ethnicity on? And so for us, the term ethnicity, we're drawing on the work of uh, Kachan Chandra, who has argued that ethnicity is based on descent-type attributes, attributes that we believe come through our parents in one way or another. Now, whether or not that's true is another question, right? So we're all basically constructivists now. If you look at the eth literature on ethnicity and nationalism, there was a divide between the primordialists who kind of argued these things were inherent and innate within people. And there's the constructivists who argue these things are constructed either by the groups themselves or by the state or by some other organization. We're all kind of constructivists now. But what Amy and I say is, well, yes, you can be a constructivist, but you also have to have the building block to create an ethnic group or ethnic identity. And what are those building blocks? What are those markers that delineate one group from another? Because ethnicity is really about boundary making, identifying who is part of your group and who is not part of your group. What we focus on are three identity markers, and we focus on these because we consider them costless. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. But the three we chose were language, religion, and phenotype. Language, obvious, different people speak different languages, right? And so that can serve as a boundary marker between different groups. Religion, people have different religious groups and religious identities, and those serve as boundary markers. And then phenotype. Now, phenotype, we didn't want to use the term race, which has been used in other contexts, because we saw this though that was a, very much a dominated by the West, right? But when we talk about identities and here in Southeast Asia, there are physical attributes that are identified by either the state or other people as belonging to one group or another group. And that those physical attributes, the physical appearance, that's what we mean by phenotype. Okay, I'm sure we could debate some of the ins and outs of that for a while, but let's get into the cases and try to understand the the sort of political dimensions of what you mean by the various terms. So, Jake, you won't be surprised that I'm going to jump in since you start off with integration in asking you about the Thai Northeast and how can you be so sure that a minority like the Lao speakers of that region ought really to be considered successfully integrated, given that, mm -hmm. as I and some of my colleagues have been arguing uh, quite a bit lately, They've seized every possible opportunity to make trouble for the Thai state over the past 120 years. For the listeners out there, uh, Duncan and I somewhat disagree on some of this point. Just to give kind of a theoretical background on why a state would choose to focus on integration versus accommodation, Amy and I argue that these markers identify our boundary. And some boundaries are more permeable than others. 
right? In an ethnic group, if you have a phenotype that looks similar to another group, if you speak a language that's similar to another group, or if you share a religion, then your ethnic boundary can be more permeable than, say, an example where you have a distinct phenotype, a distinct religion, and a distinct language. So, for example, in Malaysia, the Malay identity and the Chinese identity, there are distinctions along all three of those markers. In Thailand, there's less distinction. So if we were to argue the Lao, Lao-speaking groups of northeastern Thailand versus the central Thai group, right? The central Thai group, we think of them as the hegemon group. It's the central group that had access to political power. They are the hegemon group. Now, what are the boundaries between the Thai and the Isan people or the Lao-speaking people of northeast Thailand? Well, they share a similar phenotype. Phenotype is somewhat flexible in the Thai case as to who can be Thai according to appearance. So that's a, there's flexibility there. Religion, they both share Theravada Buddhist beliefs. Now, there's arguments we can go back 100 years and there were distinctions in the religious practices of the different regions, but the Thai state has effectively homogenized the practice of Theravada Buddhism throughout the country to a large extent. And so the big boundary marker and the big distinction is between whether you speak Lao or what is called today in Northeast Thailand, Isan, and you, or you speak Central Thai at home. So for us, and what I argue is that language marker as the distinction between being Lao and Thai, it's actually a permeable marker. And so the Thai state has actively, over the past 120 years, tried to erase that distinction, both by renaming the Lao language as the Northeast language or Ethan language, as well as trying to spread the education system throughout Northeastern Thailand and get the people, the Lao-speaking people, to speak Thai. For us, the argument would be, okay, so we have a a fairly permeable ethnic boundary. And so the, the Thai state has engaged in integration, trying to bring those Lao speakers of Isan into the Thai state as fellow Thais rather than as an alternate ethnic group. Okay, that's that's very clear. And my role here is to draw you out and to yeah. help our listeners to understand what you're arguing. And clearly there are questions that we could continue to debate in, in what you just said there. But then the other case that you use for integration also from Thailand is the case of the Chinese. And I guess a lot of people with the varying degrees of knowledge of the topic would say, well, isn't there a difference between indigenous minority groups and migrant minority groups who only came to live in that particular state relatively recently, but you're putting them into the kind of same category of integrated minorities here. Can you explain that aspect a little bit? Yeah, that's a fair point, right? Um, the reason why we consider them both in the integration category is where the Thai state, the hegemon, uh, hegemon identity within the Thai state has decided to integrate the Chinese or the Sino-Thais. And they did this for a few reasons. Again, if we look at these boundary markers, look at first at, at religion, Chinese traditional religion. In Thailand, it's often called Wai Jiao. Whether or not that religion serves as a firm boundary marker between Theravada Buddhism and Wai Jiao, that is something that really it isn't a firm boundary marker. 
because there are Thai people who are Buddhists who will go and practice forms of the Chinese traditional religion, as well as practicers of the Chinese traditional religion who will go to Buddhist temples, will be ordained as monks, will practice prayers and have funerals in those locations as well. So the religion was permeable. The next one, phenotype. Now, this is where you might say, well, there is a Thai phenotype and a Chinese phenotype. We could argue whether or not that distinction can actually be made. The Thai say about 120, 130 years ago, when it was establishing the Thai identity, it was dominated by royals as well as Bangkok, basically. And Bangkok at that time had a large migrant Chinese community. And many of those migrant Chinese, though, were integrating within the Thai political system and economic system. The capitalist markets was emerging at that time. Those people, they intermarried with Thais and their children, the Lugjin, the children of these intermarriages, they became among the elites of Thai society. Now, their phenotypes were slightly different than the phenotypes that you'd go out and see in Thai villages. And so there was an incentive for the Thai state to make sure that that phenotypical distinction wasn't strong, wasn't something that identified a person as Thai or not Thai. And the Chinese phenotypes became acceptable as high-style phenotypes. And then finally, with language, there's a whole historical explanation as to why Chinese migrants chose to adopt the Thai language. And it has to do with the Thai state being quite forceful in closing Chinese language schools, being quite forceful in making Chinese migrants adopt Thai names, things like that, as well as offering benefits to those who did. And then, of course, we also have the revolution in China and the closure of mainland China for a long period, which created the distance as well. So the Chinese community then was able to become integrated as a part of the Thai identity because of the permeability of these ethnic boundaries. And it's a slightly different mechanism than what happened with the Lao. Right. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting argument, which we could take further. But uh, we need to move on to think about how that's differentiated from accommodation. I guess since you seem to suggest that accommodation would take place where there's no shared ethnic markers between <laughs> the minority and the majority group, that could lead people to believe that if there are shared markers, then integration is the actually the only option that you're setting out in this book. But maybe we can just set that observation aside and look at the the two accommodation examples because one is the the chinese in malaysia and the other the malays in singapore and yeah. one obvious question that comes to mind when you compare and contrast those two cases is doesn't size matter doesn't it make a difference whether you're talking about a very substantial minority 30 plus percent of the population or a much much smaller one in percentage terms those are good points when we talk about accommodation, I just want to be clear on what I mean here. Accommodation is a term that we use in where a, a minority group, rather than being forcefully integrated, being forced to adopt the local language, change their names, those kinds of things, rather than that, they are given space to operate in their home language. They're given space to operate in their religious practices and so forth. It's a legal acknowledgement of the minority distinctiveness and institutional efforts to accommodate them. 
When we look at these two cases, so the Chinese in Malaysia and the Malays in Singapore, of course, there are distinctions, right? So num numerically in Malaysia, as you pointed out, in Malaya, before it became Malaysia, the Chinese were quite a substantial proportion of the population. We were looking at a situation during the early years of independence where the combined groups of minorities were almost half of the population. The Malays were barely a little over 50% of the population. But in Singapore, on the other hand, Malays have always made up about 10 to 15% of the population, give or take. I believe it's between 15 and 17 now. I, I can't remember exactly the numbers off the top of my head. The challenge here, though, was for the ethnic hegemons, which were the Chinese ethnics in Singapore and the Malay ethnics in Malaya, they had to make a decision. What do you do with this ethnic minority population that you don't share any markers with? The argument that we make is in those situations, integration is not a possibility the ethnic hegemon cannot integrate them because they just don't have enough shared marker. So you're limited to your options. One is you accommodate them. You give them a legal acknowledgement as a minority and you institutionally accommodate them. Or the other option, which is much more brutal, is you completely force them out, basically commit ethnic slaughter type thing. Now that's rare. We argue that accommodation is much more likely. Whether or not the size distinction matters, we didn't really consider the size distinctions. We didn't talk about that in the book. But, I mean, in both cases, the accommodation operated fairly similarly in that the minority group has been given some special accommodations to keep them. Well, in the Malaysian case, there's been less over time, right? So Malaysia has adopted more pro-Malay policies over time. While in Singapore, there's been an effort to keep ethnic categories. There has been an effort to keep ethnic competition out of the public space. But for us, in both cases, the accommodation side didn't really depend on the size of the ethnic group. Right. Let's uh, go on then to talk about contention, where things can often get more interesting, and there's a lot of obviously academic research and policy-related research about different parts of Southeast Asia where there has been particularly violence that's broken out between contending ethnic groups. One of the interesting points to me about your two cases there, you have the case of Malay Muslims in Thailand, a topic obviously very close to my heart, and then the case of the Chinese and Indonesians. What's happened here to questions of geography? I speak from a degree of personal bias because I've only ever been deeply interested in ethnic minorities that were territorially concentrated, like the, the Malay Muslims in Bhattani. Do you think that you can realistically compare the kind of contention that, say, the Chinese have in Indonesia with the territorially concentrated Malay Muslim identity in Thailand, which is all about the land that they're on and all about a sense of geography and all about a sense of place? If you take that sense of place away, what's the basis of comparing those two kinds of groups? Yeah, so just to clarify for the listeners, when we talk about contention, we're not necessarily talking always about violent outcomes, but it's a relationship that's characterized by heightened mistrust and, and a high probability of conflict. What happens there is, and our theoretical explanation for this is, when you have overlapping identity markers, but only a few, then in those situations, the ethnic hegemon may try to forcefully integrate 
the minority group. Or the minority group may see itself as being sufficiently integrated that they're going to start claiming rights that the hegemon group feels as though they don't deserve. We see contention as occurring when there is this mismatched expectation based on perceptions of permeability of the ethnicity. And we do, we look at the Malays in Southern Thailand who are, as Duncan points out, geographically concentrated and have this historical identity linked with the Sultanate of Batani. And we look at the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia, which are spread throughout the archipelago, mostly in urban centers, so who have had this contentious relationship with the Indonesian state. Why can we group them together when one is geographically concentrated and one is not? The argument there would be that the geographic concentration doesn't matter as much to us as does the ethnic boundary. In southern Thailand, the Malays of southern Thailand see themselves as distinct based upon their religious practice as well as their linguistic practices. They speak Yawi, a different language than Thai. They practice Islam, but they see themselves as distinct from the Thai state. The Thai state, on the other hand, the hegemonic Thai state, about a century ago, decided, and we have some records which I cite in the book in a few places, the hegemonic Thai state decided to Thaiize, that's a terrible term, I guess, Thaiize, or create the Thai identity among the, the Muslims in the Batani area. So that effort is what has created the conflict, where the Thai state saw them as integratable, while the Malays saw themselves as not, people of Batani saw themselves as not integratable. So we argue it's that mismatched perception that has created a lot of the conflict there. Um, with the Chinese in Indonesia, initially the Indonesian state operated not necessarily through accommodation, but through forced integration with them. And so many of the Chinese who were living in Indonesia, they had to adopt Indonesian names. They had to adopt the Indonesian language, abandon their Chineseness. And this was all happening during the Suharto era. After they had done this, many of them began to see, okay, well, now we've adopted the language. We've adopted names, and we are Indonesian. We see ourselves as Indonesian. And so we are going to claim some of the rights of being Indonesian. But the Pribumi population of Indonesia still sees them as foreign. For us, the conflict emerged because of this misperception about the degree to which the ethnic boundary could be permeated. For example, when Aho, the Jakarta governor, Basuki Jahaya Purnama, when he went out looking for votes in the 2016 election, he saw himself as Indonesian and he was campaigning as Indonesian. He saw himself as reaching across ethnic boundaries. But for many of the ethnic hegemon, they saw him as always an outsider, always a foreigner. And his efforts to be a co-ethnic, we interpret as being a source of conflict. So for us, it, it's these permeabilities of ethnic boundaries, not necessarily the geographic concentration. I will uh, gladly admit this is a very short book. Um, the Element series are, are all very short, so we're not able to address everything. But I think there is something to be said for geography, and we just, of course, can't address it in such a short book. Yes, so no, obviously we're acutely aware this is a 90-page book. What you do is you jump into a pretty complicated topic and try to set out a schema and lay out your stall for a particular kind of argument, and you do not have the space 
and the depth to elaborate on that in as much detail as some readers might want. And, and I've been trying to push you to explain the book by raising some of the things that people sure. would be quite likely to say uh, if they were taking a look at it and wondering how you would expand your schema a little bit. And you also mentioned just now the idea of forcible integration, which could suggest that there are multiple modes of integration or even that there's a, a spectrum mm -hmm. of integration along a certain sort of continuum, which opens up another vista of possibilities with that slightly murky category. So yes, all it's clear that all of the categories can be revisited and elaborated. I mean, do you have any plans to do any of that, to uh, address yeah. some of the, the questions that the book raises and unanswered questions that yeah. people might come along and ask? Very, very good point. Um, I can't speak to exactly what Amy's doing on it. I know that she's still working on ethnic identity issues, and she's just recently done a book on Chinese ethnic identity in Eastern Europe. So she's still working in this space. I myself am also working in this space, and I've recently done a series of survey experiments in Thailand where uh, testing basically the boundaries made by phenotype, language, and religion in Thai identity. I've been expanding on this and trying to grapple with it. For me especially, one of the things that interests me the most in the Thai state, and something that came out of this book, is the, the ethnic nature of the Thai identity. So often we'll, we'll talk about Thai national identity and we'll say, okay, so there are different types of national identities. There are civic identities, there are ethnic identities. Civic identities would be based on values that people can become whatever nationality it is by adopting those values. While ethnic identities are tied to points of birth. If you're born into a certain ethnic group, then you can become part of the nation. But if not, then you're excluded. So I've really been interested in this point of phenotype, because in the book we argue that phenotype in the Thai case is quite flexible, but I hadn't found anyone who really had made those arguments before to a great extent. I mean, William Skinner in the 60s had written about the fact that Chinese phenotypes were accepted as Thais, and there were a few other people who were writing about that as well. I developed a series of online survey experiments um, to try and test that out. Depending on how quickly I can write all that up, I'm hoping it comes out at some point in the near future. So there's more to look forward to. Yes. Some of our continuing puzzles and queries about the, the framework that you set out are going to be addressed, which is great to know. Yes. Thanks very much, Jake, for joining me today to talk about your new book, Ethnicity and Politics in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and thank you very much, Duncan. It's been fun and challenging, uh, and it's always good to have our ideas challenged so that we, we can think through them a little bit more deeply. Absolutely. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor in the Public Policy and Global Affairs Program at NTU. I've been talking to SMU's Jacob Ricks, co-author with Amy Liu of Ethnicity and Politics in Southeast Asia, a succinct overview that sets out to reframe our comparative understandings of ethnic integration, accommodation, and contention in the region. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network Southeast Asia Studies channel. Mm -hmm.